Hello and welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and on today's show, I get to chat with Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University, as well as an expert on philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early-stage organizations. She is also the author of Social Startup Success, a very neat and interesting book. But don't take it from me. Here's what Darren Walker, who's the the president of Ford Foundation had to say about her book. It reveals the secret sauce behind the most influential nonprofits of our time, telling their stories in memorable ways that every nonprofit leader can learn from. And I hope every nonprofit leader or social impact leader or just leader will be able to learn something from today's episode and chat with Kelly. We talk about failure. We talk about um, the need for better education and training for people heading into the nonprofit space and a little bit of a lean impact methodology and how that can be applied to both organizations, big and small. So thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So last time we spoke, I think your book, Social Startup Success, was just coming out or maybe it was about to come out. So I want to talk more about that book, but maybe just like what's happened in the last year or so since you've released this book? (laughs) Well, it's been a wild ride since it came out in in January. I have had a massive speaking tour. I've, I've been speaking in uh, 20 cities. I've had 50 speeches over the wow. course of the first half of the year. I've recorded 40 podcasts. <laughs> 41 now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, done a lot of writing and it's just been exciting to finally get these ideas out into the world. You know, my book was based on five years of research interviewing hundreds of social entrepreneurs. And so, um, you know, it's, it's exciting to be able to uh, make this information useful and get it out in the world to people who can benefit from it. Yeah, I was uh, I was having lunch with someone just yesterday, in fact, and they have this idea for like people give a dollar and do some kind act. And he was really struggling with like, well, what do I do? And like, where do I go to learn about how to actually, you know, <laughs> scale this? I was like, oh, well, let me tell you <laughs> what yeah. I'm talking to tomorrow. And, you know, because it is kind of like a, not an empty space, but it seems like it's it's a underserved space of sorts. If you're not a business and you're not a nonprofit or you're kind of blurring the lines, there's not a lot kind of helping you figure that out. Well, yeah. And the reality is, I know this from my own story. I was a young lawyer in San Francisco. I wanted to do something to help my own community. And so I co-founded a small organization called Spark to engage my peers in gender equality issues. And we were you know, doing great kind of in the beginning, we were able to do enough to get ourselves off the ground. But as often happens with nonprofits, you get to a certain place and you can't get to the next level. And the reality is what I've found in my research is that there are proven strategies that the best organizations are using to get ahead. This is not, you know, rocket science. It's basic sort of measuring impact, innovation, collective leadership. And 
what I really love about my book is that it brings all these together in one place so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel like we were trying to do at Spark, like so many nonprofits try and do, learning these lessons on their own. And so is that why you wrote the book was solely based on your experience or kind of as you went on, you started meeting more and more people who had a similar experience and then the kind of research side of you is like, well, wait a second, how do we, you know, tackle this or why write a book? Because a lot of people have problems and they don't write books about them. So why write a book? Well, that's exactly what happened is I was really curious, well, who are the organizations that are scaling past this wall that we hit at Spark and what are they doing that we were not? And I learned in my research at Stanford that that the wall is real, that two-thirds of nonprofits in the United States are $500,000 and below in revenue. And so there are many organizations that are really struggling with this issue. And, and, and I wanted to write a book to try and help organizations learn about the strategies that the best organizations are using to scale. So without spoiling the whole book, because then I want to dive into a couple kind of more focused conversations, but it is very practical and you do kind of provide a playbook for these kind of nonprofits or social impact organizations. Can you just give us a couple quick glimpses into like what that playbook kind of entails or what your research uncovered? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, that's exactly what it is, is social startup success is the playbook that I wish I had when we co-founded Spark. And, you know, in my interviews, I kept waiting for someone to say, well, it's just charisma or a brilliant idea or something like that, that, that gets someone ahead. And no one said that. And it's not to say that charisma and grit and a brilliant idea aren't all important. But what I learned is that again and again, I heard these strategies come up that nonprofits were using to lay the foundation for scale. So um, using innovation and testing ideas early on before going out and getting media attention, measuring impact right from the start, using those metrics to both prove that what they're doing is working as well as improve as they grow, Uh, collective leadership and drawing on the talents of their entire team, uh, including their board. Uh, uh, fundraising experimentation and drawing on both earned and philanthropic income as sources of revenue. And finally, storytelling and and really prioritizing, realizing that you can't build a movement if you don't have a great story and figuring out how to uh, how to practice storytelling and, and, and to empower those around you to do the same. Yeah. And, and that, that's a key one too, because storytelling is a bit of a you know, buzzword. And uh, there's a, there's an actual, you know, art and science to storytelling. It's not mm-hmm. just like, here's a person and here's what they did. Like that's information posing as story, but storytelling is something pretty different actually. Totally. And, and, and it's purposeful and it takes a lot of practice. I just yeah. gave a TED talk in China last week wow. and I practiced that speech probably a hundred times in order yeah. to get up on stage <laughs> and do it. And, you know, and this is coming from someone who's just given 50 speeches on my book tour. Like I'm practiced, <laughs> um, but really nailing it is important because if you want to build a movement, you have to be able to get people on board um, and, and evangelizing along with you. And now a lot of the, the things that you cover in your book and a lot of those sound not not easy, but thinking, you know, if I'm a small or a new or a young organization, that stuff seems doable. But like, what if I'm a large organization or an older organization and just feels like, man, I, I have so much, you know, historical crap <laughs> that I got to wade through. Are there still things in, in the playbook that kind of apply to them? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's actually hard 
for both small nonprofits and large nonprofits to implement these strategies. I mean, small nonprofits are really just all hands on deck trying to trying to implement their programs on a day-to-day basis, let alone finding time to develop a theory of change and, and, and develop key performance indicators and, um, and, and go out and raise money and all these things that I, that I talk about in the book. So, um, I, I feel like I presented in a nice package, but you know, implementation is always the the challenge. Um, especially when, you know, when you're a small nonprofit, you may be just yourself trying to do all these things at once. And so I always encourage organizations, don't try and do everything at once, you know, figure out one or two things to prioritize each year and kind of build on them and grow from them. Um, but large, nonprofits also, I think, really have a challenge. There's so many uh, charitable organizations that are doing really important work that have been around forever, but that also means that oftentimes they're operating in, you know, older ways and can really learn from some of these new strategies that we have developed to figure out how to maximize impact in the sector. Um, And so, you know, it really takes leadership at the top. And oftentimes uh, for older organizations, it can mean staff turnover. Um, there's an organization called First Place for Youth in, in the Bay Area where I live that is serving um, foster kids as they transition into adulthood. And when Sam Combs came in as CEO, he said, we got to figure out how to measure impact around here. You know, we aren't really using data to uh, maximize our impact. And his staff looked at him and said, we didn't go to college to collect data. We went to college <laughs> to help kids, right? right, right. Um, which, you know, is true, but you need to be able to know whether you are actually actually helping those kids in the most effective way possible. And so Sam, during this period of developing a data culture for his organization, actually had 70% staff turnover. Wow. Um, so it can be a really challenging thing for, uh, older organizations, but is super critical to, um, to, to figuring out how to have the most impact that you possibly can as an organization. Uh, you mentioned earlier that some of the kind of skills or kind of the playbooks more or less can kind of be, be taught or learned. But then uh, when I was preparing for this, I saw a great post of yours talking about how while this can be taught or learned, we're not really teaching it, you know, mm-hmm. in the places where people kind of get taught. Can you expand on that a bit? Because, you know, I, I teach at the graduate level. We do online training. And part of that is to try and that's my experience of like, I don't think we're teaching the right things that people need. So I'd be interested to know your take on kind of what your research says and then what you see in terms of what's being taught or not taught. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you a story of um, someone who I think really embodies this. Uh, Rob Gittin uh, was the founder of At the Crossroads, an organization that serves homeless youth in San Francisco. And Rob had just graduated from Stanford. He wanted to continue to work with uh, homeless kids. He had been volunteering as an undergrad. And so he got together with one of his classmates. He started the organization and he was uh, doing the work that he loved, helping homeless kids one by one by one, uh, doing outreach around the clock. But he realized quickly that if he wanted to be effective in serving the thousands of homeless kids that needed him, he would actually need to build a movement and a much bigger organization. But he was 22. He had never... 
hired before, even though he needed an army of people to help him. He didn't have uh, the contacts to people to help him raise millions of dollars that he would need for this organization. Um, And so, you know, his story is really emblematic of this challenge that we have in our society where we are expecting our nonprofit leaders to solve some of the biggest challenges of our time with one hand tied behind their back because we are not giving them the skills and the tools that they need uh, to not only run organizations, but be a part of organizations as effective staff members, program officers, fundraisers, you know, all these things that nonprofits need. And so, you know, I am a huge advocate as someone who teaches social entrepreneurship of um, developing opportunities for students to get on the job training in the classroom before they actually graduate. I mean, imagine if Rob Gittin, before he started at the Crossroads, had the fundraising training, innovation training, you know, all these things that he would need to, to run an organization. And I also don't think that it has to start in college. I think that, you know, right. giving young people, I have a six-year-old and I'm already teaching her how to fundraise. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, she is my daughter. Um, um, but, you know, my six-year-old, my four-year-old and my three-year-old know what fundraising means. They know that you can't run a nonprofit yeah. without, without funds and that nonprofit leaders struggle. And so I think these are lessons that we can start early and and I'm really hopeful because the next generation is already going to do this work. They, right. 60% right. of teens say that they want their jobs to impact the world. Um, we know that 25% of teens are already volunteering. And so we need to prepare these young people to turn their passion into impact. And I believe that the way to do that is by teaching them these very teachable skills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, and the experience component is is massive. I'm, so I went to I went to grad school and I I couldn't remember a lot of the the courses but I remember every internship that I did like who my boss mm-hmm. was what my roles were and what that experience oh, yeah. was you know and then you know in conjunction with what I was learning in the classroom but, but yeah oftentimes it's either like an academic pursuit or maybe some experience but to marry those up particularly for a sector I think it also blows some people's minds or kind of they have this idea of what it's like to you know work in a nonprofit or whatever and that can kind of like like totally reshape, like, ah, this is what it's really like, you know, and maybe that we can equip people a bit better that way. Hey, everyone, this is Brady back to the episode in a second. But who doesn't love taking tests? Well, that's what you'll have to do if you take one of our in-person workshops. The advantage is you'll actually get fully certified in something like Facebook advertising or email fundraising optimization or donation and landing page optimization. We've got these full one-day workshops where you can really get your hands dirty and dig into these subjects and we'll share kind of all of our research and case studies with you. If you want to learn more about this opportunity and when the next one is and where it might be near you, you can do that at nextafter.com slash training. That is nextafter.com slash training. Back to the show. So another thing that that I saw you write about that I want to cover, and uh, it's in the book as well, but is failure. And and what did you find specifically about failure kind of in your interviews and research uh, along the way? Well, the reality is that failure has become a four-letter word in the nonprofit sector, (laughs) that there is this aversion to uh, dealing with programs that might not be having the impact that 
a nonprofit is intending because the reality is that nonprofits have to go out and fundraise for their budget every year. And so there's much more incentive to talk about what is working as opposed to dealing with what's not working and course correcting as you grow. But we also know that failure is really critical to the innovation process. Uh, There's this great quote from Thomas Watson, who was the CEO of, of IBM for 40 years. He said, the best way to succeed is to double your failure rate. And so I think that's really uh, applicable to nonprofits too. And I I think there's got to be a way for nonprofits to develop a culture internally of talking about failure. Some of the organizations that I talked to uh, developed things like the biggest failure competition or they have failure Fridays where they (laughs) talk about a failure and then they celebrate it and they learn from it, which is really what's, what's critical is, is reframing, uh, learning failure as learning. Um, but I also think it has to come from the philanthropic side. You can't expect nonprofits to transform the way that they think about failure if you don't have multi-year grants so that nonprofits feel comfortable to go to funders and say, here's what's here's what we're dealing with right now. Here's what's challenging for us. And know on the other end that that is going to be met with partnership um, and allyship as opposed to the way that funders typically operate, which is as a gatekeeper. Um, So how do we turn philanthropy into more of a partnership and an allyship as Mm -hmm. opposed to uh, this kind of gatekeeper, grantee, grantor uh, culture that we have right now? Yeah, and it's a little bit of that that chicken egg back and forth, right? Where organizations need to be more clear with the philanthropic side, with what we're doing, what we're, what the success we're having, the failures we're having, and then you know the philanthropic side needs to be more open to the fact that not every dollar is going to produce immediate impact, and we got to think long term. And I think the conversation is evolving. It's just it's a little slow <laughs> to go back and forth. Um, going back to to failure for a second, I think two of the the things that that I've seen is is people. Um, do like big, big fails. So they'll kind of wait and then like launch this thing and it's this huge failure instead of taking more of the approach that you mentioned earlier with kind of like what's a little uh, experiment or what's a little test so that you can fail on a small scale Mm -hmm. and not just work for a year and a half and launch this big program that just sucks or flops. Um, Like that mindset doesn't seem to be as much um, you know, in our space. Did, did that come across with successful organizations versus not that they're kind of taking that, you know, lean approach to, to kind of innovation as opposed to not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned lean. The lean startup method is something that I talk about in social startup success, which I think is absolutely applicable to nonprofits, this idea of build, measure, learn. So it's this constant cycle of learning as you build as opposed to build, measure, build, (laughs) and just, you know, keep going and scaling. Um, There's a great new book that's out by Anne Chang called um, Lean Impact, uh, which maybe you can have her on the podcast. She was. She was on, <laughs> we already taped it. So there we go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So listen to that podcast, <laughs> listeners, um, because um, I, I think she's really transforming the way that we talk about uh, these principles in business to the nonprofit sector. And I, I do think, I don't think that everything can be solved by business, but I think that we can learn from the business sector in many ways. And I think this is one. 
Yeah, and and what was cool in that conversation is, you know, she was doing this type of thing with like USAID, which is like massive governmental organization. And so, you know, those principles, again, can apply to large organizations or or small organizations. It's not a a size thing. Um, Okay, moving on past failure, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about generosity since this is the Generosity Freak Show. I'm interested in how you define uh, generosity. Hmm. I define generosity as generosity of many different things. I think you can be generous in time. You can be generous in spirit. You can be generous in your financial resources. Um, And I define philanthropy as generous in all of those different Mm. ways. Um, And so I'm constantly thinking about not just how can I distribute the financial resources that I have generously, um, but how can I be generous of my time to people who are looking to get into this sector? Um, And um, how can I be a generous mentor? How can I uh, be a generous board member? All of those things I think are important as we think about how we can make the most impact in this world. And so when you think about generosity or philanthropy defined that way, what what do you think we can do or what is it that we need to do to kind of grow, optimize, and improve this this world? What are a couple of things that, that either you've uncovered or, or that you've seen to be true? I think the biggest challenge for people is they just don't know where to start. Someone might be very generous, um, but generosity without action is meaningless, of Mm. course. Um, It's one of the reasons why we started Spark as a group of millennials trying to figure out in our own community as young professionals, well, how can we give back? Where can we give our money and time? And at the time, you know, burdened by uh, student loan debt myself, I would stretch myself and give $250 to an organization. It felt like a lot of money to me. And, you know, it felt like a drop in the bucket to the organization, right? So thinking about how we can value people for their generous acts um, in a variety of different ways and provide people the channels to not just give financially, but at Spark, for example, we educate people about Mm. issues so that they um, can be more knowledgeable about where to give their time and their money. Uh, We give them volunteer opportunities so that people can not just give money, but we know that young people want to also roll up their sleeves. Um, And I think that the, the the onus is on nonprofit organizations to harness this spirit and give people the opportunity to channel their generosity. I think there's also an opportunity for companies to get involved in social impact work. 55% of millennials say that they want to uh, go to a company because of its commitment to a social cause. And we also know that 97% of millennials want to contribute their professional skills to volunteer efforts, 97%. So this is a real opportunity for companies to not just engage in one-off volunteer days, but to invest in social Mm -hmm. causes that they care about by engaging the expertise of uh, of their teams. Awesome. Well, that's a lot uh, that we can all work on. <laughs> and you have been very generous with your time. So thank you for, for taking some time with us today. Um, where can people learn more about you and, and your book? Well, you can find me uh, at KathleenJanis.com. And you can find Social Startup Success at your favorite bookseller. There we go. 
Well, thank you again for coming on the show and all the best with your many, many speaking gigs <laughs> coming up. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kathleen. Uh, isn't she lovely? She's great. I love her. I love her laugh. Uh, I also really like that her book kind of breaks down this kind of mystic, uh, mystical element of all these successful social impact organizations or nonprofits and kind of boils it down in her book to the kind of these – a framework or a roadmap of saying, no, no, no. This It's not like some mystery or secret. Like here's some actual proven things that she uncovered through her research because I worked for a very small startup nonprofit and I know how challenging it can be and you're kind of desperate for these, you know, silver bullet strategies and you're under resource and you got so much time and sorry, you don't have much time and you're always looking for for solutions and so to kind of hear that hey, yeah, there is a solution and it's not being charismatic or it's not just working harder necessarily, but there is a bit of a roadmap. I think that that's great um, that she kind of uncovers that and and uh, in her book and, and then provides it, gives kind of a playbook or a roadmap. Again, I, I wish I would have read that <laughs> before I started my first job. And then getting into teaching and how we can equip people, I think that's really important. And then failure. I know that's one of the things that we struggle with a lot uh, at Next After where we do testing and optimization and we fail a ton. <laughs> but it's not about failing in the, in the micro. Uh, it's about succeeding in the macro and sometimes you need to fail along the way. Uh, you can learn from failure. One thing that we didn't talk about with Kathleen but I do think is really important when it comes to especially the, the failure side is a lot of times people will kind of in hindsight say, well, here's what we learned from failure. And I think that can be a bit of a cop-out. If you don't know what you're planning to do and how you'll be measured going into, say, a campaign or a project, then you can't just retroactively assign learning and failure or I think you do so in a flawed way. Part of like Build, Measure, Learn or part of actually running experiments or, or real you know, pilot projects is to have a thesis or a hypothesis or, or an assumption of this is what we think will happen and here's how we're going to measure it. If you do not state it, a, how do you determine what whether you're being successful or not because you can kind of reverse engineer success or failure? And then how do you actually learn if you're not uh, articulating on the front end what it is that you're trying to do and what you're trying to learn? That's why kind of a, a project plan or like a you know theory of change or, or some kind of structure – before. You can't just run some campaign and then be like, okay, well, what did we learn? Uh, I think that's a dangerous way to go about learning and it's, it's something that can pretty easily be avoided even just by, again, stating a bit of a hypothesis or purpose statement before a campaign project or experiment. Anyways, and that's enough from me. Uh, you've uh, heard plenty from me and you've heard plenty from Kathleen. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you as always for listening. See y'all next week. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. 
Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchiriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. 